0: Hey, listener, welcome to Heirlooms, where we discuss family ties, hand-me-downs, tchotchkes, and all the traditions that make us who we are. I'm your host, Haley Ingersoll, and I started this because I'm curious about the items, practices, people, and places we as humans place value on and the stories behind them. Let's get into it. Welcome back, everyone. It's your host, Haley. It's been a while and longer than anticipated. I appreciate your patience as i've been back and forth a bit to wisconsin and it felt a bit like false advertising that i posted episode two would be coming soon in april but life ended up lifing and things got busy for transparency we lost my opa or grandfather if you're not as savvy with the german alternative back in march and i came home for a while so we could lay him to rest while I was home, I also got to mill around at the library that we frequented when we were children, which was kind of a blast from the past, knowing that the librarians uh, that we always adored were still there. Um, But part of that was looking at microfilm of old newspaper covering and things that my family may have been part of. So it was really rewarding to kind of pull out all of the stuff out of the archives and revisit some of the past times. In my head the entire time, it was like the Reading Rainbow theme song playing. And yeah, it was just kind of fun to go back to this place that meant so much to me as a kid and reflect on some of the family memories that are housed there. The silver lining of all that is the amount of quality time I've been able to get with family As many of you know, funerals have a way of pulling up all of the stories, photos, and keepsakes that a person like myself gravitates to, and I've been soaking it all up while I'm here. Naturally, that's the whole point of this podcast, so I look forward to sharing some insights about that in future episodes. But as for episode one, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in and providing a ton of great feedback. Some of the fun ones included that I have a good two-speed voice, so I don't know if I should pick it up in the future, but... I digress. I guess. I don't know. That's kind of fun. And then both of our Wisconsin accents are thick. I was already aware of this, but it's definitely funny listening to yourself back and uh, becoming just hyper aware of how bad it is. So here's a reflection from my dad as well on that same topic. Do you have any initial reactions to how the first episode went or how this experience has been going?
1: I didn't, you know, how nobody likes to hear their voice when it's played back. And then I got to listening to it and it made me sound like Stephen Avery, the Avery family and stuff. And <laughs> then I do tend to talk like a youper and I had no idea I ever did that, you know, I definitely talk with a Wisconsin accent though. Yes or no, you know, every question has to end with, you want it or not, you know, <laughs> here's all <Yeah>. say. <laughs> how we you know? say,
0: yeah, no. And then we go into our sentence. But I was told the same thing Is both of our accents are pretty, pretty intense.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it makes me realize when I was in Louisville, how many people made fun of me. And I was telling them, oh, bullshit. I'll never switch and talk with you guys. do. So mm-hmm. <laughs> switch and talk with me because there's no way.
0: And as I mentioned in the episode, there were lots of things I learned in the process of getting this off the ground. As much as I loved spending hours cobbling together the audio and trying to equalize volume, I'm excited to report that the audio quality in this better in this episode and those moving forward will be a lot better just because of the quality of the software that I was using and um, you know, not recording via Google voice. So, happy to say that that will be improving. Um, As well as the conversational nature, you know, I get kind of bored of hearing myself talk and I imagine my audience does too, especially for these episodes with my dad. I'm glad to be doing less of the talking because frankly, I'm just not as funny as he is. And to that end, he wanted to emphasize that he sees a lot of his life with that comedic lens, much like that of Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like the time that he picked up a sketchy hitchhiker, you'll hear that he has a reputation of finding himself in these somewhat unbelievable scenarios that either leave you in stitches in one way or another. Hey,
1: I had a, a cousin he used to date a really good friend of mine from New London. And we used to ride our own in a, a car together, a Mustang, the Ford Mustang I had and stuff. We had a lot of fun together. But then my friend kept accusing me of fucking her. So one night we stopped out by where Tim and Renee live by Granite Quarry out there. And we got into a little bit of a fight and I was kicking past his head and everything because I could really kick high and stuff back then. I knew a lot of karate kicks and stuff. And um, so years later, time goes on. And one day me and Albert decided that we didn't want to do Christmas. So we took off and went and looked for a bar to go to. (laughs) And we found one open in New London. (laughs) So I thought, what the fuck? I can't believe there's a bar open on Christmas. Well, nowadays, it's a pretty common thing, but back then it wasn't. And I went in there. Lo and behold, um, my friend or whatever, my cousin, was in the bar, the girl, you know. And the guy that she was with then tried to get all boisterous with me and stuff. So I tried to do my famous old um like a flying forward kick and just scare him or whatever or just you know get him to sit down or whatever. I kicked him right in the side of the fucking head, oh, no. <laughs> and Albert and I laughed until we just about pissed our pants. <laughs> it was like I can't <laughs> believe they just kicked that fucker. I've practiced for so many years just missing, just letting him know I had the ability to kick that high and I can. Bring like a roundhouse across your face or whatever. You <laughs> I, caught them. Yeah, I booted them right in the jaw. <laughs> so then I had to apologize to them a whole bunch of times and shit. And probably bought <laughs> them a few beers or whatever. But yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, so <laughs> hilarious is what it was. And the time with the toy gun and no one known as the cars. Next thing you know, I got officers throwing their pistols at me. <laughs> and it's like, what in the hell? It's a toy gun. And he goes, we're a little bit old, too old to be playing with toy guns, aren't you? And I said, well, you, you're still playing with guns for the cop.
0: (laughs) Needless to say, there's probably dozens of other stories just like that. And we'll get into some of that today. For that reason, I won't make as much of a to do about setting up the episode this time. But just as a recap, the last episode gave us some context into this heirlooms origin story and my dad's upbringing. We heard about the family dynamics, values, and things that were fundamental in his childhood. And as we addressed, things weren't always great, but there were a few redemptive aspects. His Captain Kangaroo doll and the music of the times that brought the family together. Overall, the turbulence of this environment, his rubs with authority, and what seemed like that (laughs) hard to say predisposition for bad luck or trouble set the tone for his adolescence and teen years. Which is where we find ourselves today.
1: I you mean, know, was always somebody having to dig something up. Like my mom was a e number one instigator of half the fucking shit that ever happened. Start picking, start picking at my dad. And all I would take. Next thing you know, you'd hear the gun come out of the top dresser drawer, and it's like, oh shit, here we go again. What the fuck is wrong with you, woman? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now we're gonna be dodging bullets all night. <laughs> it's like
0: yeah which the fact that that was your reality is just it's Uh, hard to believe you know
1: it's impossible to even fathom thinking about it because we didn't think there was anything wrong with it it was just normal and gary once got the gun away from and knocked a revolver out of it otherwise he'd have shot himself my dad and then My mom drove them pretty fucking crazy, I'll tell you that much, and I'm not going to say that there's not faults on both sides, but when you got somebody pushed, and you know know what they're going to do, and you just keep on nagging, and nagging, and nagging, and then say, well, hey, 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 wait a minute, maybe you should back the fuck down, you're not just dealing with your own life anymore, you're dealing with all of us. But listening to all the threats of divorce and stuff as a little kid, and you're thinking, "Well, which parent am I going to go with, you know? How's this ever going to pan out? And then every time my dad would start waving guns around, you're thinking, well, if he shoots her, the next thing he's going to do is come up here and shoot every fucking one of us, then he's going to shoot himself like he should have done first. You know, it's like, huh, just, you know, hindsight's always... (laughs) right (laughs) so i don't know it just scares the shit out of you though knowing somebody can flip between whichever one of them was trying to kill themselves last or whatever we go back and forth like that and i can kind of see a pattern that it raises in the kid's mind well whenever something doesn't go your way or whatever just kill yourself or threaten to kill yourself anyway then you'll get your way you know so i think we all suffered a little bit from that over the years too just trying to take control of a situation you really didn't have control of because you can never make another person feel what you feel.
0: As we've iterated multiple times, that experience and those like it were foundational to him and his upbringing and his behavior thereafter. So this is kind of how he described it.
1: With my blatant lack of respect for authority, I'd seen so many phony, baloney pieces of shit growing up. Like my dad grew up, he was a deacon, you know, in the church and stuff and everything else. And then all of a sudden he gets kicked out of church.
0: <laughs> this lack of authenticity and downright toxic behavior in some occasions led him to kind of question why he should fall in line. And naturally it led to a lot of um, bad behavior, for lack of a better term, and he regularly got in tussles at school and also was just kind of a hellion when it came to motor vehicles, which is something of note because he ultimately ended up in a pretty terrible motorcycle accident in his high school days. From what I was trying to track down at the library, this motorcycle accident occurred in the summer of either 1982 or 1983. Just before one of the following school years. Um, and he and his brother Gary were uh, riding their bikes and coming up on the lean of a big country road curve when Gary got kind of scared because he was, you know, hugging the line or whatever the case, and essentially just kind of crowded my dad off the road, which unfortunately led him to swerve off the road and crash.
1: And he got scared and leaned, lean and he pulled up and forced me off the road.
0: Fortunately, he was wearing a helmet, though he still did suffer pretty severe head injury. And given his temperament for being in small spaces, was very adamantly opposed to being loaded onto an ambulance. So as I've heard the story described, he got up and physically was like trying to run away after the accident occurred. And then my grandpa shows up on the scene and is like trying to kick his ass basically for getting in the stupid accident in the first place. The EMTs were trying to get an IV in his arm to which he yanked out. And to this day has kind of a um, misshapen vein in his arm. So he wasn't going down without a fight is the short of it, but he was ultimately taken to the hospital and then flown via helicopter to another location and put under for several days to help heal as part of his skull was cracked.
1: And my hospital stay was six days, and two of those days were unconscious because they had to try to get the swelling and bleeding on my brain. I, you asked about what was your recovery like, I really don't think I ever recovered lost so many things at the same time, and kind of like the same thing with divorce and how many other um, tribulations and turmoil I've been through in my life.
0: In other words, this event was pivotal for him and had long-term implications in his life, which makes sense considering it was a traumatic brain injury and accidents can be life-altering.
1: After my motorcycle accident, my judgment was really impaired, and because I was unconscious and felt I had another shot at life I was always like there is no reward without risk so I had to be doing something to thrill me whether it was driving 130 miles an hour down the fucking highway listening to whatever music I listened to back then Bon Jovi or whatever it was on and pushing the limits I was actually more willing to have the hide part of my heart, hide part of my personality come out. So I wasn't afraid to be an asshole or whatever and just, fuck it, I no, no reward without risk, you know, and just do whatever the hell I thought was neat that day, you know, just run off the road and chasing stuff around in the field and I don't know, taking jumps with cars and stuff, you know, it's like, huh.
0: As stated, he was already kind of a troublemaker leading up to the accident, but this new lease on life of sorts led to him being a little bit more authentically dark with his personality and his behavior. And this translated at school. I don't know if there's any things you want to mention about, um, you know, like getting kicked out of school, what that was like, or things leading up to the motorcycle accident.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the motorcycle accident was before me getting kicked out of school, you know that, right? That's Oh, no, that's good to clarify. I, I wasn't mm-hmm. aware of that. Yeah, that was the summer in between my sophomore and junior year. It would have been just before we went back to school for the junior year. Then I had um, brain damage and stuff, of course. And they had me on uh, some kind of stuff for my brain. So I didn't go into um seizures. And that kind of gave me this, false sense of courage I had all the time where I wasn't afraid or intimidated to say anything where it kind of basically makes you as unimpaired you're not you know I don't know you're kind of like under the influence of something else that's giving you a fake set of um, some feeling that you can't possibly ever be beat or defeated or whatever you know and when you're not afraid of anything or anybody because you've seen Just about every type of thing that you can see in life, you get a bad attitude, like a rebel, you know, plus the high testosterone of a male in his teens and pushing forward. Just insane. And there was like nothing I wouldn't do. And that was (laughs) what got me in so damn much trouble. And then with my unblatant lack of respect for authority, that just kind of manifested into fights with teachers and all this other stuff. And had a lot of run-ins with teachers. I used to get really sick of having to sit in Betty he- Betsy Hegel's study hall. So one day I got up and I said, what the hell would happen if I got up here and walked out of here? She was, well, you'd be on my shit list and that's a pretty bad place to be. I walked out of there anyway. She tried to grab me by the ear and take me to the <laughs> office. That didn't work. <laughs> no, then there's a few other incidences I had with teachers and they kept getting back to the school board, back to the school board, back to the school board. And then kind of the icing on the cake was when, um, well, Matt Schultz had put a great big thumbtack on my chair in study hall in Mr. Worgan's room. And I sat down on that and that hurt so freaking bad. And I knew it was him that had done it. So I went over there and I was still in such a stunned state but he was actually getting the better of me when the fight started. Then I finally got going and I warmed up and just whooped the shit out of him. But at the same time, I figured one of his buddies was going to grab me and try to yank me off and start fighting me from the back. So all of a sudden, um, somebody grabbed me and spun me around and it was a teacher and I turned around and started sucking. <laughs> and that was kind of the icing on the cake that year. It's like, <laughs> but that's all that all came to be about getting finally kicked out of school is because I kept screwing with the wrong people. And you know how it is in our small city, you screw with the wrong family and you're pretty much fucked. So you fuck with somebody's kids on the school board and you're gonna get double fucked because they're gonna be going, he's nothing but trouble anyway, let's just get him out of here or whatever. And So I still ran into a lot of problems with that even after I came home, all the stuff I was trying to get done and I still couldn't get anything done through that damn school because of all the attitudes and stuff. And it's like, I don't know. There's a lot of teachers and stuff to like me, too, because they knew that I wasn't very stupid. You know, I was pretty smart and stuff. And it would be like, why are you wasting your whole life like this and things? And well, I, I got along with a lot of them and had agreements with a lot of them, too. Like Mr. Renz would just send me out in the hall. Just oh, why don't you go walk in the halls for a little while, Greg, and get sobered up. <laughs> so I'd be like, all right, maybe I will. We'll see if I can find Sager and get the hell out of school. <laughs> So we always had a trick for every occasion, though, man, when you're young and stupid. So, but you and Truman cleaned all that up, so it's good for you guys. I was just about to add
0: that I think, you know, in a small town, you're already very hyper aware of what reputation precedes you, but... Knowing yeah. what I did know a little bit that I did kind of growing up about, um, you know, your generation and what your siblings went through, I always kind of wondered too how the optics of that were, especially, no. you know, there were teachers that I had that you also had. So, you know, it mm-hmm. might be kind of like a weird deja vu for them. And I was always trying to be very mindful of that as a student.
1: Yeah. Well, you've heard people say stuff to her, Blackburn and stuff, she told you, your dad was a real wildcat or a hellcat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, even it. in
0: in March too, when I was kind of poring over your yearbooks and stuff, it was clear even from your peers, all of those comments, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. saying, you know, stay on the straight and narrow, don't drink too much, stay out of mm-hmm. trouble, or even mom's note, which I think is hilarious, where she said, give mm-hmm. school a try, why don't you come back next year? <laughs>
1: But they they didn't want me to come back though for my senior year. So I went back for a few days or whatever and it's like, never going to be able to graduate in my class anymore or anything. So I don't fuck this shit, you know? So so anything else you need to know about that or?
0: Yeah, so you're saying it was more like a suspension and then you ultimately decided to drop out. Is that
1: the correct read on that? They tried to make me come back on senior year saying I was going to be truant and all this other stuff and it's like I had my parents withdraw me but at the same time Melvin had had a heart attack so I was working for him and I don't know just a crazy bunch of mixed up shit is what it was so okay so you were working on the
0: farm proceeding being out of school
1: too yeah yeah okay yeah, work for him on weekends and stuff for a long long time and then Um, when he got in trouble and then Kelly O'Connell wanted some time off to work or whatever. So I went to work for him and then he liked me. So he pretty much hired me and then all of a sudden everything was going good. And then it came time to go back to school and they're trying to make me go back to school. So I was gonna try to go back to school. And I don't know, it just didn't fit anymore, you know?
0: The man, Melvin, that he just referenced was a farmer and a longtime family friend who kind of took him under his wing after he I think he was actually still a student. But nevertheless, he was working for him on the farm before and just after leaving school for some time. While he was doing that, it seemed like he was, you know, relatively well adjusted, all things considered, but eventually did end up getting into trouble once again.
1: I was going to say I had a lot of friends that pulled me out of messes, too, that I got myself into. I was never afraid of how many people were in the fight. Because I figure if you start swinging and you start hitting and you start hitting people before they hit you, I mean, they get stunned when they first get hit. You know, like your mind goes blank and you, you have a few seconds where you're docile, you can't do anything. So that's normally when you punch them again, you just keep going, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at that, that bar fight in man that the time when they started yanking hair out of my head and stuff then it kind of got bad it's like i'm not gonna fight three people at the same time anymore they get too fucking dirty
0: three <laughs> people get, at one time
1: yeah you know, all at the same time and i made some stupid bet just as a joke that i was gonna triple triple bank the eight ball into the corner pocket you know, you come off of three rails and bring it back. Well, it's pretty much impossible shot to hit for just a mediocre pool player. And I thought they knew that that I was just fucking around. So they started insisting that I owed them money for some bet or whatever. And then Kathy was bartending, and she goes, "Fuck it, Greg. You don't owe those guys any money. You don't pay them or whatever." I said, "What am I going to do?" And she goes, "Well, you're not going to pay them. That's for damn sure. I'm not going to let you pay them." So then all of a sudden they started on me more and more. So we're standing in kind of a little clump of people or whatever. And all of a sudden, they started swinging. I thought, <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> I don't know if I had to fight them or not, but I thought, fuck, not going to wait for them to get the first swing. in. So I started <laughs> kicking the shit out of them. Oh, man. Then I went through a part where we were practicing karate and all this shit, too. And I thought I was really tough. Somebody would run around, and you'd get in situations and end up with fights with people or whatever and for no apparent avail or reason. I repeat this so many times in my life. Do you know how many of those people I got in a fist fight with that I sit around and drink beer with today or that I sat around and drank beer with yet that night? Just the stupidest thing. Why do you got to fight, you know? Just a dumb bunch of shit. But it was the way it was, and... I'm glad that that part is phased and no, all no. the people don't fight like that anymore because of the laws Or you go to jail for that shit now you all be yeah. at school you're going to be in jail
0: that's I had that reflection after we talked the last time and just the amount of like oh I almost got in a fist fight with this teacher or I did get you know it just seemed like everybody in the 80s was just like throwing punches constantly So I understand you were out of school and still continuing to farm for Melvin, but I'm kind of wondering what the lead up was with going to Kentucky ultimately, because it sounds like you were done with school when you were around 17. And then Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned your um, on the run era was when you were maybe like 20 or 21. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there's much you remember from those kind of in-between
1: years, what that looked Mm like. Well, that all started with me getting drunk driving. So I'm thinking, oh, fuck, it's this late at night. Nobody's going to pull me over. Sure as fuck, I got pulled over. I got cited for drunk driving, but I was using my older brother's license and name and everything. I didn't have my own driver's license at that point. And they thought it really was Gary, and they thought I was diabetic. And at one certain point, they were thinking about giving me insulin and stuff, which would have killed me. (laughs) I'm still sitting there holding to my story that I'm Gary, you know. I didn't want to go to jail. And I made up all these lies about that it was my brother Gary driving the car that night so I could get out of it because I already was in trouble. And then Gary went to court to tell him that it wasn't him driving the car when he had the notes and letters and stuff from me. And the cop stood up on the stand and said, oh, bullshit, that was him. <laughs> And then I realized that like, Gary and I must still really look alike. <laughs> and he had out of it. And he was pissed. I mean, he was fucking mad at me for a long time. <laughs> but he had to waste all his time out of his day trying to clear my name. But he never did rat me out. He knew where I was and stuff. And he didn't never rat me out. <laughs> and he didn't even know what was going on. And then all of a sudden the cops show up a failure to appear in court or whatever and they're trying to arrest him he's going what the fuck you know? <laughs> that isn't me
0: yeah I can't Ooh. imagine being in that situation on the receiving end
1: no and I beat that so me and this group of guys were riding around one night and we decided to break into the shoe store so we got in there and we decided the last case scenario, if we couldn't get any of the safes opened or whatever, we just take shoes, because everybody needs shoes, you know, and they were that expensive back in the day. So I'm um, wrestling around with it. And then I suddenly flipped the safe over on the bottom and the combinations are right on the bottom of the safe. So we just opened them up and cleaned the contents of them out of there. So we went into trying to hide all the stuff and get rid of all the evidence and things. But then that's when people started ratting me out and parents started noticing kids with money that they knew they didn't earn the right way. And then they'd report them to the police. Those people would go and rat me out to the police saying I was the group leader and all this shit. So then they came looking for me right away. But I caught wind of it. One night I was looking out the bedroom window and I saw the cop car come by shining the light on the house. And I thought, fuck, I know I got to get out of here. So on the next day, well, actually I bought a car that I was gonna use and then that broke down. So that was a Mustang I had. But anyway, um, after following that, then they came by and then my dad gave me a ride to the airport in Green Bay. The next day my mom came with me just trying to get me a place to live for a while. And then that's how I ended up with Ed and Regina. And then she tried one more time to get me down by Grandma Anna. And then Grandma Anna was willing to take me but her ex-husband, Paul, stepped into the picture and he took me down by the ponds and he goes, "You, I know you're in trouble or whatever and I'm not gonna say shit about it or whatever, but don't bring that shit down to your grandma. You just need to get the hell out of here. And I did then, I got out of there and I went and see it was Ed and Regina. So that's how that all manifested. And I don't know if Regina knew I was in trouble or had or whatever, maybe put two and two together or not. I don't know, but it started out with me working for him. And you gotta remember, you know, I can't take this heat now. I just imagine how bad it was back then. It's hot down there, that motherfucker, all the time. Things grew pretty quick down there, but you always picked the tomatoes before they they just barely started turning a little bit, but they're still primarily greenish-orange at the very best. And you always um broke the green stem off the top of them. You put newspaper down on those bread racks, and then you stacked them. Upside down, and he put them in this dark, dark, cool basement, and then he left them there. And then you wait till he got this ruby fucking bread, like people went to a restaurant, tomatoes to taste, like on a hamburger or whatever. You want that big, sweet taste and better boy or bigger, better boy or whatever he grew. And he had a perfect way of doing it. And he'd take me around at night, and we steal these bread crates from behind grocery stores or whatever that we left out for the bread people to get and things. And then you'd, um, you grow tomatoes and a better boil grow, especially in a hot climate like down in a humid climate like they have in Kentucky. Those plants grow like 12 to 16 feet long. So they have to be staked in the air. And then when they get to a certain height, you start bringing them back down again. And then as the tomato plant grows, you sucker it. You find um, little limbs on the tomato plant that don't have any buds or anything growing on them. And you snap them off, you take them completely off, because otherwise the tomato plant is going to be feeding that not working on the tomato. But there was quite a bit of work to it sorting and restacking and getting this out and getting that out. And then sometimes one crate would be half the ones that were turning yet and the other ones weren't. And you would restack all the different crates and try to get more crates available. And and then um learned that Ed has a lot of friends. He's been going to Louisville Market for how many years it was unreal how many people knew him and come get their stuff from him and um made another couple friends who I assume were gay they had the sandwich factory across the street and I used to go buy sandwiches all the time from there
0: yeah it's not lost on me how the tomato variety was called better boy and how that could be kind of an allegory for what yeah. you were up to that summer, you know, with Ed maybe being kind of like an informal influencer role model for you and keeping you busy and helping sort of, you know, try and put you on the straight and narrow.
1: Yeah, yeah. He was trying to auction me off all the time, too. He was trying to, <laughs> to find a woman so I could move out, you know. Sure, Yeah. yeah.
0: A while back, I reached out to Ed and explained to him that I was going to be working on this podcast and also went on to say that it was largely inspired by his tomato farming and the involvement that he had with my dad in his younger adulthood. So I asked him if he could remember anything from that time when my dad was living with him and working for him. Um, And he kindly replied back and said that my dad was about the best helper that he ever had that he had a great work ethic and a get-her-done mentality. He said that the vegetable farm was a bit frustrating to him because he could never really get it all done. He also loved cows and talked a lot about them, and he had worked on a dairy farm before he had come to help them. Another funny thing that Ed said was that with all the energy he used, he had a big appetite. So once our family was eating at Taco Bell and he was the first to order, and he ordered burritos, tacos, and a lot of other stuff, to the point that they thought he was ordering for them too. But when he got through, he turned to Regina and asked her what she wanted to order. So they had a big laugh about that. Though being in Kentucky may have been somewhat unfamiliar territory, he found people along the way who taught him things.
1: Then I met these two guys called Ray Ray and Squally. And I ran around with those guys for a long time. But then one day we we're running around and um, I don't know if it was Ray Ray said to Scully, you know, hey, you know what I can do? He took a rock and he threw it up and knocked the street light completely out. So I thought, wow, that's fucking cool. I can't believe that somebody could throw the rock that hard to break that street light off in the ground. Then I got to thinking about it, huh? These guys do that in neighborhoods where they're breaking in the houses. <laughs> they go and they knock the street light out so nobody can see the house. And then they can go creeping in or whatever they do. And so kinda of distance myself from them. They had a drug deal go bad one time in Indiana or whatever. And that was the end of being with around those two.
0: The man at seven eleven who supplied him beer despite it being a dry county.
1: So we were working our asses off all the time. And then sometimes they just get so sickening because you'd be all done with the day and you had all these plans. You wanted to just school, relax or cool off and go get some beer from that gay guy and all this stuff. You remember I had a gay guy that was trying to get up in me.
0: Yeah, I've made <laughs> sure to detail that he was gay and that he was yeah. into you.
1: <laughs> well, that's how I got beer down there though because the legal drinking age was 21 and it was a dry county, so huge. And then he kept trying to kiss me and all this stuff and I was like trying to push him away. <laughs> But he gave me ice every time they didn't have room for all the ice in the cooler. So I had that whole dog and I could bury all this beer in there. I didn't have any form of ID or whatever. And I was always way too too truthful with people. And so I start explaining things I had no business explaining. And he was like, bing, bing, bing. His
0: brother, my Uncle Al, came down for a summer to help Ed out on the farm. And they also found girls to flirt with.
1: He decided to come down for the summer because he'd worked for Ed one other summer so ed was really happy to have us both back but then albert and i fell in love with the tennis court over there because he used to knock balls into one of the tomato patches that was irrigated there so we take the balls back over then we start playing with the balls <laughs> and then we we're supposed to be sorting tomatoes and picking them and restringing them or whatever. And next thing you know, we're over there playing tennis with the girls. Why <laughs> why Albert was there, we'd target Catholic churches mainly because there's so many dry counties in Kentucky. But the Catholic church is always allowed to provide alcohol for the parishioners. So that was one of the big tricks we learned right off the bat is to hang out with the Catholics. So any fucking wedding or anything else, we saw or baptism party or whatever. Albert and I were there and trying to pick up all those Catholic (laughs) girls. And then once Albert left, I just went roaming by myself a lot at night. And I had my little spot, I told you, where I dug this great big gigantic hole in the ground. I buried beer and ice there all the time. And it's hot in Kentucky. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of that. It's a motherfucker down there. So, but it worked. I always kept my beer cold, and I had a like a stump I sat on, and just tried to give me a chance to relax from Ed because there's a lot of times Ed was over pretentious. I mean, he would just he was just nothing but a fucking worker. Do this, do that, do everything right now, right now, right now. Oh, the summer was kind of a fun summer, and then all of a sudden it climaxed, and now we're home. I thought, fuck this shit. I think I'm gonna go home too. And then I got a bunch of cash. I'm not gonna tell you where I got it from, but just found it. it. Mhm. Yep. I'm laying on the street right there in front of me, right by a local dairy queen <laughs> that I used to frequent a lot. And so I found a whole bunch of money in there, and I gave some to Albert to fly back and get school cold and stuff for the year, and then um. I went and I bought a a tan colored um, Plymouth Horizon and luckily it had a plate on it and stuff and that was a little tan Horizon car and that's where I got the white styrofoam cooler from and I took off without an atlas, without a map, without anything figuring it can't be that hard to get fucking home from here and I ended up in so many different places and so many different things happened and and um came back home and Regina asked me if everything was okay. And I said, oh, I don't know. I'm pretty upset about Albert going back or whatever. And she was, "Well, oh, be careful, Greg. I don't want anything to happen there. To Next thing you know, I took off for Wisconsin. So I was on Winn-Dixie and I picked up a hitchhiker along the way um i thought i was gonna get shot by this guy that was trying to get me to a party out in the middle of nowhere and i kept thinking no, nah, this isn't going over so good he's got something up his sleeve so I shoved him out of the car and got the hell out of there and then that's when i met that girl that her boss was telling her off at work in the fast food place it was probably a wendy's he used to eat at wendy's a lot and he was telling her what a dumb bitch she was and she was doing such a shitty job or whatever and i started yelling at him. and I said, as a customer or whatever, does anybody want to hear that shit? If you had something to say to her, you should have done it in privacy. You don't do that shit in front of paying customers. So I'm just trying to talk her into going with me and she wouldn't go. So. <laughs> but I got to see and do a lot of things. That I never would have.
0: Yeah. that It says a lot too, that you weren't just a bystander. Like there's no reason you needed to help whichever hitchhiker Or Mm -hmm. chew out that Wendy's, you know, manager who was bitching out his own employee. Like, it seems like you've kind of always had that inclination to step in, even if it's, you know, if you could just mind your business and, you know, turn the other cheek. But Mm. it seems like you've always kind of had that desire to mediate and protect other people.
1: When I took off and then I ended up over in Iowa before I got back to Wisconsin because I never used road maps or anything and we didn't have GPS and shit back in the day. So yeah, I'm running all over, driving all over the state. I was stopped for two things. You get ice and beer in the cooler or the pee into our both. So I had a white cooler, a white <laughs> foam cooler sitting on the front seat and I'd dump a case of beer in there and a five pound bag of ice and just keep going, you know? Then I was in Iowa for a while, and then I doubled back, and I started trying to figure out where Wisconsin was again. I finally bought a road atlas, and I found my way right away. You know, it's pretty easy once you see it on paper. (laughs) I finally remember how remarkable it was to get back to the state of Wisconsin, I almost started crying all the time. And I got into Milwaukee, probably about 10.30 that morning, and one of my biggest Jokes was I stopped at a uh, Stucky's that used to be a big, huge um, souvenir shops that they had on 41 all the way down. I don't, they don't have them anymore, but used to be able to drive right off the highway. And then that's when I stopped at the Stumblers and got my escape to Wisconsin hat and all that other shit. And then many things I could sunglasses and stuff, and just anything you could throw around the car, whatever that was made it look like I was visiting Wisconsin.
0: Yeah. That's, um, that's one of the heirlooms I was considering for this episode. Like if you had to come up with like this emblematic item yeah. between that, of course, just like a tomato, because that's the play on words behind this whole thing. Right. was like you helping Ed with the tomato farming and then, um, better boy is like the name of the episode, which I just think is kind of a fun way to summarize. Like Mm -hmm. you were kind of on the mend and then got into some more trouble. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I considered, too, was like you mentioned having a cooler, like a white cooler with you while you were down in Kentucky yeah. and how the white igloo cooler is just like a symbol, like it's just a huge deal to our family.
1: Yeah, I see the correlation. Yeah. And then I took off for home, kind of luckily by chance. I drove by the farm, to and the farm just what made me cry because it was right on the way to going home. I oh, I wish I could stop in there and talk to these guys, you know. And then I got home. I went out by where my dad lived. We always called it the new house. And then um, as I came in, my dad saw me turn in there. And he goes, that son of a bitch. <laughs> that son of a bitch. And I got home and he told me, take your car down and park it by the other house. We don't want anybody seeing that right away because then they're going to know what you're driving. And then, then we're trying to decide what to do next. Everybody's advice is just turn yourself in and admit that you weren't the ringleader. You're just a part of it, just like everybody else. And I don't know why they're blaming it all on you. You were just there, you know. That's probably what I should have done.
0: But continuing on with the story, here's a little bit more about what occurred once he got back to Wisconsin.
1: So me and Albert went into planning for like the next two weeks to find some big major heist we could do, to help me get enough money to go get set up somewhere else, maybe even get a house or whatever. So we were scooting around looking. One of the places we went to was a place off of um, Highway 10. So we're out there crawling around on our fucking bellies at night trying to figure out how the hell we're going to get in there. <laughs> we damn near got caught. I thought, well, fuck this shit. Let's get the hell out here. So then I got to thinking, well, f- i quitting bro. I'm like, There's got to be a way for us to get the hell out of there. So we kept working on it, working at it, working this, that, and the other. What we do when we get in there, what we get for money. If we can't get the money, we're just going to grab a bunch of booze and get the hell out of there. So we got in there. The safe was about as big as Texas, and we couldn't get in the safe. So we grabbed a bunch of booze. and We were getting ready to go running out the back door, and there were squad cars sitting up all over. I said, oh, Albert, this isn't looking so good. Let's just put the booze down so we can run faster. And you go out that door running like lightning. I mean, and sure as fuck. And he was a runner. I mean, that fucker can run. He kicked it down. And I was running so fast, I kept falling down. My feet kept slipping out from under me on the grass or whatever. But I still ran those cops by like 350 fucking times because they're 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 bigger men. I mean, they're not, you know, and um, Albert was completely away. He was probably halfway back to Manoa from Clintonville. (laughs) He was running (laughs) and they got me and they said, unless you want your little brother to get shot or whatever, you probably better get him to give himself up. So they hauled me around in the squad car talking on the PA and saying, You'll be at home sleeping in your own bed tonight, Albert. I gave myself up, and I'm the one they're after, so I'm sure as hell that worked. And then they tried to twist it around and say they never said it. And it's like, oh, you're not going to pull that shit on me. Then automatically my cooperation stops right here.
0: While he circumvented the law for some time after his initial dealings in Wisconsin, he ultimately got caught. Given he had outstanding warrants at the time, there were implications for him that tied back to his previous activities with other people. To the best of my knowledge, none of the other affiliates were charged or sentenced, but my dad shared some interesting perspective on that front. It seems like, you know, despite making mistakes, you've held yourself <laughs> accountable or been held accountable for the most part.
1: Get covered for people people's what I did, Haley. I mm-hmm. covered for so many people. Especially with that um, whole last stunt that got me sent to prison. You know how many people I covered for, including, um, now I'm now not going to mention any names, but people who are in my family that got, you know, weren't included in this shit that would have been. So it's like, hmm.
0: Did you feel a need to do that? Did you hope for something karmic to happen in the end? Or was it just kind of, you know, doing the best with what you had at that time
1: well I just didn't want anybody else to get in trouble I was willing to take the blame I was willing to take the heat you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I just kind of kind of sad yeah. it all panned out but I still that takes
0: integrity it does
1: uh, yeah I guess you don't have a choice when you're you know when it comes right down to the nuts and bolts of it, you know, you're already in trouble anyway, and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. And you could try to get out of more of it by ratting more other of people off. But then guess what? Those are all people that are going to have to pay the price for what you involved yourself in to be right off the upfront about it is like, man, you did what you did. You did what you did. So why blame somebody else for it? take the punishment for what you did and leave it You on so I don't know I don't know if you kind of get what I said or if I need to re-say yeah, that
0: or... yeah I see how you're saying it like that just negatively impacts other people and you should be responsible for the aspect of it that you were responsible but it's yeah. yeah it's easy to when you're in that position to point fingers at other people who should likewise be held accountability if they had blame in the in the deal but yeah, yeah that's that's why I'm saying that that takes some courage or selflessness too to be able to say I'll just take take the hit for all of us.
1: Well, basically, i was taking the hit for what I'd done, and but I, it was in a cover for everybody else just to admit to what I'd done. Now mm-hmm. it's it because I I wasn't responsible for what those people did, but I also didn't feel responsible for ratting them out and tattling on them. You know?
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: i'd done what i had done and i crossed a line that i shouldn't have crossed i deserved to pay a price for but i was going to try to bring a bunch of other people down with me Mm -hmm. it doesn't like we're going to hang out together in prison we're going to be you know cellmates or something like that
0: which i guess that's one thing you can kind of reframe that it sounds like you know I, I guess I just keep going back to the the Wendy's employee that you stood up for and how you've kind of intercepted a lot of other really hard moments or protected people from danger. I, I have to wonder if that comes from just the organic, like crisis, crisis management skills that you needed to have in that
1: environment. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really you're just trying to make yeah. it to day.
0: Yeah. Um, Still doing that, but I hope you give yourself some credit for all the stuff you did survive. Though the trouble and the lessons didn't start or end after this, I do want to be mindful of episode length and wrap up with a few things. I'll say now that I intend to share some of his experiences and an heirloom related to his time in correctional facilities in the next episode. There's lots of stories we've been pulling together and I want to be sure to share them thoughtfully. I know I've said it before, but working on this has definitely been an exercise in discernment. It's not the most intuitive thing knowing how much to share. While my dad has very much been an open book throughout my life and these interviews, and even said himself that there's nothing he didn't really already tell on himself for, I still want to tread with awareness and acknowledgement that it's a vulnerable, vulnerable, that's a hard word. but it's a vulnerable thing to dissect your experiences and put them on display, whether they're good or bad. Not that I or we can fully control the narrative or how you all feel about him or his past, but I do think it speaks to the humanity in all of us to interrogate how we've lived our lives and more importantly, the meaning that we make of that. I haven't known how I would wrap this episode up since there are still more stories to share in the next episode but I was listening to a different episode of the podcast called How to Start Over This Morning. It's hosted by a staff writer from The Atlantic who analyzes what it takes to change our relationships, work, and perspective such that we can learn how to start over. The episode I listened to touched on the macros of how to identify what you enjoy, one of them being the concept of purpose. As they discussed, the guest speaker Lori Gottlieb's response reminded me that It's most often the painful things in our life that provide purpose. We like to think that it's going to be climbing the next rung at our job or doing some great noble thing. But it seems that more often it's the unexpected events, losses of a family member or a close loved one, or those mistakes that we made along the way that add contrast and meaning to our lives. All that to say, revisiting these stories isn't meant to glorify crimes or harm done nor is it revisionist history that paints a prettier picture than what really occurred. But I do think that there's merit in sharing what it looked like for him to take the path less traveled by. By many counts, people who have walked in his shoes or those similar and ended up incarcerated also didn't have an easy hand dealt to them or they found themselves in circumstances that were not favorable. Perhaps you yourself have had a turning point or moments in your life that have permanently altered your course It's really easy to get caught up in the hypotheticals of what would my life be if X, Y, Z thing had or had not happened, but it's often not a good use of time. Instead, embracing these obstacles or transitions, whatever you want to call it, with grace and self-compassion can be really empowering. So on that note, here are a few nuggets of insight that my dad kind of shared with me as we reflected that I think conveyed what he learned from these really major events of his life.
1: That would be the biggest one I wanted to try to get at is your thing about, did the motorcycle accident change me? And I said, yeah, of course it did. You know, um, every birthday changes you. Every person you meet in life changes you in some way. There's so many people, you know, it's still judge me by who I was or whatever, but people change every day for the good and the bad. And you know there's a reason people reconcile everything at night before they go to bed is to get the, at peace with that stuff. But yeah, you know, that was one of the things that put respect in me though, was I'm having a motorcycle accident. And then thinking about all the decisions I made prior to that, and that's where you always are, learn and you relearn and you relearn a million times and you're more than a million, probably a million a month, is hindsight. Hindsight is always the expert, you know. If you you, long as you're learning something that's going to help you be a better person, out of the deal, it wasn't totally that bad. I mean, that's.
0: I just love that last bit. It's a great reminder that even our obstacles and failures are opportunities for growth. Considering all of the people and experiences we addressed in this episode, by that logic, he had a lot of opportunities to change and learn from what he went through. I've been lucky to have much of that wisdom shed on me over the years, and I'm looking forward to sharing more of it as we dive into his next chapter in episode three. In summary, the intent of this episode was to illustrate how some of those foundational aspects of his youth, including relationships with authority and trauma, manifested in his younger adulthood. Pivotal events included his motorcycle accident and injuries, his exodus from school, criminal dealings, and ultimately getting caught. These culminated into a series of lessons and, of course, heirlooms to remember them by. That includes the Better Boy Tomatoes, Escape to Wisconsin memorabilia, and the trusty igloo cooler. Can't forget that. Along the way, he met people who helped him, corrected him, or even tried to take advantage of him, and he had to respond accordingly. All of these actions left an indelible impact on him and were undoubtedly formative as he was just a young guy trying to figure himself out. Being a 20-something myself, I can't imagine having experienced or gone through what he did at the same age, but I am so grateful to hear them and learn from them. As he said, every person you meet changes you and I can certainly say my dad has had that impact on me. To that end, I want to give him a shout out for spending all this time with me, and so bravely sharing the wisdom and tribulations of his life. It's his birthday week as I record this, so it feels extra special to share more about his uniquely fascinating life. As always, I appreciate you all tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and would love if you turn it, tune in for future iterations. If you've got any questions that we can answer or address for episode three, be sure to send those my way. And moving forward, my goal is to put episodes out more consistently, which should be easier once I get people with more boring backstories on. That's a joke, of course, but to that end, I'm hoping to get some guests lined up for future episodes. Feel free to drop me a line if you have feedback or an heirloom story of your own that you are interested in sharing. Until next time, take good care.